I have some really exciting news for listeners of the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Most people think lifestyle investing is about making more money or creating additional passive income streams. And while that is part of it, the most savvy lifestyle investors understand that having a solid tax strategy is fundamental and really foundational to creating wealth. I firmly believe that having the right tax strategy is the single best investment that you can make. I know tax strategy isn't the sexiest topic, but once you understand a few key elements to the IRS playbook, the compounding benefit you receive year after year is enormously significant. In fact, we have members inside the Lifestyle Investor Mastermind who have used these strategies and have saved hundreds of thousands of dollars, and in some cases, millions of dollars. This is not a nice to have if you're interested in growing your wealth. This is a must. In our brand new tax strategy masterclass, I have hand-selected and shared the details of the 28 most valuable strategies to help you increase your tax savings this year and for years to come. Plus, if you want to hire a top-tier tax strategist, it can easily set you back tens of thousands of dollars, if not more. And you want to make sure that you have the best, most accurate information to ensure that you're hiring the right person for you. That's why we included a whole section with advice, resources, and multiple interviews with my personal tax specialists to help you build a bulletproof tax team, but for a fraction of the cost. The entire tax strategy masterclass was designed for people like you who want to keep more of their hard-earned money without having to sift through the complicated tax code. If you're interested, head over to lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash tax to learn more about the course or set up a free consultation call with our team at lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash consultation. Again, that's lifestyleinvestor.com forward slash tax. Welcome to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. Imagine being able to earn passive income, build long-term wealth while gaining total freedom from your business or job. That's what lifestyle investing is all about. I'm your host, Justin Donald, and in less than two years, my investments drove enough passive income for both my wife and me to quit our jobs. And now I want to show you how to do the same. I want to teach you how to create wealth without creating a job. You'll learn the exact same investment strategies I use to multiply my net worth to over eight figures all before the age of 40. If you want to learn all about low-risk cash flow investing, achieve financial freedom, and live the life you truly desire, this podcast is going to show you exactly how to do it. Today, I'm talking to Robert Glazer. Robert is the founder and CEO of Acceleration Partners, a $20 million business that has won over 30 awards for its company culture. The company employs over 200 people worldwide and despite being fully remote, is recognized as a best place to work by Inc., Fortune, Forbes, Entrepreneur, The Boston Globe, and Glassdoor. He is also ranked as the number two small business CEO in America by Glassdoor, hosts his own podcast, is a best-selling author, and his Friday Forward newsletter reaches over 200,000 readers each week. On top of all that, he's just released a new book 
How to Thrive in the Virtual Workplace, a leadership book for any entrepreneur who wants to build a world-class virtual company. In this episode, you'll learn what it takes to build and scale a fully remote team and why doubling down on core values is key to long-term business success. One more thing before we get to today's interview. Robert has a very special offer for Lifestyle Investor Podcast listeners. The first 25 listeners who buy his book, How to Thrive in the Virtual Workplace, will get free access to his new on-demand course called Discovering and Developing Core Values, which is a deep dive into building your core values and applying them to both your work and life. This course usually retails for $79, so don't miss out on the savings. And for those who miss out on the limited giveaway, no sweat, you can still get the course for 30% off. To participate in this offer, visit justindonald.com forward slash 32 for all the details. Thanks for listening. And without further delay, my conversation with Robert Glazer. Bob, I am so excited to have you on the show today. This is going to be a blast. You and I have really gotten to know each other quite well over this past year, uh, being involved in uh, kind of like a, a mastermind think tank together. And I have just thoroughly enjoyed your perspective and uh, just all that I've learned about you, you're, you've had so much success in so many different areas, and I'm just excited to explore those with you today. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Justin. It's been it's been a lot of fun getting to know you as well. I'm getting my my investing education from you, so it's been it's been very mutual. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, I, I tell you, you're in a, a good position. You've built a very successful company. You've built multiple companies, and you have you're in a situation where you have suitors. There are people that want in on what you are building and what you are creating, and at the same time, you have expertise not just in building businesses, but also in education and in writing and thought leadership and that whole realm as well. And so I'd love to learn kind of how you got your start to all of this. Yeah, I, I joke that I have a, a day job and a, and a night job. I think that the day job is building my company, Acceleration Partners. Uh, and then I think you alluded to, we spun off a company a few years ago called uh, Brand Cycle. But we're in the partner affiliate marketing space, and that's really continued to grow. I think we're the largest global agency that manages those programs independently, have a couple hundred people passionate about what we do. But as as we started to build the business and as I kind of made the decision to build the business, reluctantly, I, I was determined to sort of not do a lot of the things that I really didn't like about <laughs> other businesses, whether that was certain aspects of culture, or how we worked or leadership or management. So, you know, along the way, we tried some new things or different things. And I intentionally said, I, I, I don't want to be that I don't want to create a company I don't want to work with. And as we figured out some of these things, we started writing about them, talking about them, um, and and you know getting some attention for uh, what we were doing. So we, we always say there's sort of what we do, but I've also become passionate about the how we do it, and that's led to my sort of nights and weekend uh, writing career around stuff around culture and leadership, and most recently remote work. As we've been fully remote for almost 14 years, I, I, I joke that it's gone from something that we almost literally hid from our clients to now I'm getting to ask to like (laughs) speak at companies about it. So it's been, it's been quite a transformation. That's so awesome. I mean, what a dream 
to build a company that kind of spawns into another company that then creates another opportunity for you. I just think, you know, most people, their, their goal, the American dream is to, you know, own a home and to have their own business. And you've been able to do that a few times over and people look to you for your expertise. Now I'm curious based on what you said, because there are clearly ways that you believe you should run things. There are ways that you probably shouldn't run things. So what are some of these uh, separators for you? Like what distinguishes your business or your culture or your leadership from what you've seen in the marketplace or what you've experienced through some of the consulting work that you've done and some of the speaking that you've done for major corporations? Yeah. You know, I, I don't think there's object. I think we think of like, objectively a good and bad culture, right? Like let's, let's assume that, you know, treating P paying people well, treating them well, like we'd agree that those are good things, like treating them horribly, not paying them well, lying to see like that's bad. Like I, yes, those are clear, but I actually think the general problem with companies, I equate it more to universities. Like my daughter's a junior looking at college, you think about they have different value propositions, right? Like the large city school doesn't pretend to be the suburban liberal arts school. And I, and I think like, this is the problem with companies and cultures and leadership. They're just not honest. I think some of the leaders don't know what they want. They haven't done the work to say, here's who I am. Here's what I value. Here's the company I kind of build sort of unapologetically about that. Like, I think that we're a great culture. I say this. And if you look at our hiring statistic for like 1.8% of the population, based on what I can tell, who believes the same things, likes our core values, like we're not the right fit for a lot of people. You can imagine like a, you know, let's say there's two companies. Like one is a started by a competitive athlete. They're growing 50% a year. It's kind of like, it's all about up or out. 80% of the bonuses go to 20% of the people and they're kind of changing their industry, but it's a tough cutthroat place to work. Then you got company B, like family business, grows 4% a year, really values tenure and loyalty, not innovation. People in each of those companies probably wouldn't like the other company, right? But the problem is not when the person at the, cutthroat company says, you know, we value teamwork and everyone's an opinion. It's like, no, you don't. You value winning and losing and you value winning a lot. So, but if you said that, then there'd be a lot of people out there. So I I, I think there's just this whole intentionally or unintentionally, you know, we need values. We'll pick the same thing off the wall as everyone else, rather than saying, look, here, here's what we are. Here's what we stand for. It's not for everyone, but if these things are really you, you'll, you'll, you'll love it here. That's awesome. And my friend, uh, Darius Mershazadeh, uh, wrote a yeah. book recently called the core value equation. And, you know, many of you know him and, and, uh, he's just such a fan of mine and that's it. Like he gets into how to kind of define who you are and the culture that you have and the importance of that based on what, it is that you're trying to accomplish. What are the values that you hold? And not just so that it sounds nice. Like it's okay to have values that maybe it is like uh, move up or move out or the, the, may the, the right. best like man. We value winning, right? I mean, that appeals to some people and not people are just that. Yeah. Your value should not be, and I know Darius well, and he's great on the company values. Your value should not be something that anyone else could say. They should have a differentiated point of view. I I've similarly worked with our leaders and built a course around discovering your own personal core values. And, and again, when someone says my value is integrity, I'm like, no, I can, I can come up with six different versions of integrity. Like it's gotta be like, I have a list of really good ones that, 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 that people have said, like, it's gotta be more definitive as to like, how is it different from, from something else? 
That's cool. So you recently have had uh, a liquidity event, right? And and this is kind of a new world for you. You've been building, building, building. Uh, you've been an expert in this space. And then you have these you know, companies that are interested. And you've had people that have, and, and organizations that have kind of been you know, trying to court you for some time. And it's my understanding that you, you found one that was a really good fit. And I'd love to hear some of your thoughts there and what that experience has been like. Yeah. I mean, when you build a business forever uh, and, and, you know, after the first eight weeks of COVID, I, I think COVID was an interesting experience. I mean, obviously I haven't met anyone who wasn't selling, you know, masks who in that first eight weeks wasn't in a, you know, abject panicked and free fall. And then I think it started sorting itself out uh, after that. But I think, you know, when you, when you're building, 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 reinvesting, and you get to a point where 99% of your, you know, wealth is, is, is tied up in that business, you, you know, a moment like that, you start to think about, well, that, that, that's kind of scary. And what does that mean for my family? So, you know, we had been wanting to grow um, and thought about sort of partnership for a while. And we found, we had talked to some folks and once, once the patient sort of stabilized <laughs> later in the year, our, our industry was consolidating. And I, I think this was a lesson that I've learned to, you know, the timing is important. And, and my friend said to me, our industry was rolling up and consolidating. And a friend of mine said, you know, when your industry starts consolidating, either you become the roller, you, you know, you roll in somewhere or you get rolled. And I, I thought that was a good thing. So we, we actually decided we wanted to be the roller. Like we have thought we had a great brand, a great management team. We were going to need a capital partner. And part of that would be how could we de-risk a little bit? So we found a great partner and, you know, we've, we've done two acquisitions already. And I think maybe one of the things people don't understand about the notion of, you know, platform or be a platform, like if you work with an investor to create a platform around your company, you're building that around your team, your brand, and then you're going out and adding to that. You know, when you go into a platform, you're going into an existing team, an existing brand and otherwise. So there's pros and cons. It's a lot more work to be the platform, but given that our culture was so important to us, how we did business, like we just, that was, that's what we wanted to do. Well, I think it's important to pay attention to the signs and what is going on. And I, you know, I had a conversation with a friend here just yesterday, and that is that most people never have the opportunity to actually build a successful company. Most companies don't make it. And if you are lucky enough, talented enough, right timing, you know, however that plays in, uh, where you get a, a company that booms, that's exciting. Most people never make it there. But the interesting thing about it is there's generally a, a peak, a ceiling. There's a time there's one or two place. windows. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and you've got to execute. You can't just think that it's going to continue to grow. So if you have an opportunity to capitalize, that might be the only opportunity that you ever get for some sort of an exit. And then I wanna follow that up with the different ways that you can exit. So in some instances, you've got people that completely exit. It's you sell 100% of your company to someone else, you know, someone in the private equity space or, or whoever, maybe it's a public company. That Strategic, yeah. Yeah. So that is a common way. And then you've got other situations where maybe you don't have a clean break and there's an earnout, and you're kind of tied to that company for two to four years and you're helping, you know, with, with that transition and helping build it. And maybe you stay on even longer than that, but there are opportunities there. And then you have other ones where it's like, Hey, I want to invite you in. We need capital. 
and you have the capital. I've got the expertise. So I want to continue running it. I want to give you some equity, but if you give me some capital to work with, we can really scale it. And it sounds like that the latter is what you did. So you had an opportunity for some liquidity, but now you have the dollars to be able to take it to a whole nother level. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, we have the, it just also, right. It makes it every future investment, people look to me and they're like, well, what do, what do you want to reinvest? And, and you know, so, so that, you know, that, that is less about looking to me. And if there's an opportunity, we can do it. And I don't have to look at it. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't think people realize like, let, if you're the owner and funding the business, right. At some point, you know, it just gets big enough that like, you know, even if a business is growing 40% a year, you might have cash flow needs or growth needs, or we're going to buy the software. And, and those might be bigger checks than you can actually even afford to, to write because you've, you know, tied up the capital in the business. So, so exactly, you know, we were really looking for a partnership um, where, you know, someone come in, both, both the money and the know-how in our industry, you know, we found someone who's really the leading investor in our industry. They have just done it time and time again. And, and they're really good at the stuff that we don't know how to do, like the stuff that's endemic to just, we're at a company of our size for the first time, like from a compliance and growth and treasury, like a lot of that stuff. Well, we know the industry and we say, you know, here's the company that we think would be a good fit, but then they would, you know, help us acquire it. So yeah, there are different partnerships. I, I like you like shared incentives. So, you know, you know, there are, Earnout type deals, or they're kind of deals where you know you're contributing equity, they're contributing dollars. Like everyone's kind of in the same bucket with the same incentives, and I like that structure a lot better. I, I, I've known a lot of entrepreneurs that are just miserable, begging to get out of their earnouts because they they can't. You know, they've sold the company and they they're, they're supposed to do certain things, but then they're not in control of those things. I, I would say I've heard the most disaster stories about about earnouts, which is why you're not seeing them as much. I think the private equity firms and their model of rolling in equity has really started to put a squeeze on earnouts, and it's it's forcing strategics to think about how to how to do the deals in different ways. Yeah. How do you partner that is in more alignment? Because once it's not your company anymore, it really is. I know a ton of people that have fallen in this where it's like they're being bossed around on how they're going to run their own company. That's no longer their company. That's tough. And then there's also ego in play. And, and that's a challenge. And then, you know, you have a, a culture shift. And so, you know, it's interesting. You made the comment earlier that Sometimes it might look really good because you're having this month over month growth or quarter over quarter or year over year, and that looks sexy, but that doesn't necessarily mean that cash flow is strong. And no, I you actually, have enterprise clients, they pay very reliably 120 days after your employees need to get paid, right? So that's right. And I've experienced this in my own business that it's actually funny. The more you grow, often the worse financial worse position you're in. And the I, more- I agree. Our, our cash was much better as our growth slowed, like historically. Um, it just, you know, more clients, more employees, it starts, companies don't, don't go out of business because they, you know, their profits negative. They go out of business because they, they run out of cash. Um, but again, there are a lot of different structures. So, so the one that, that a lot of private equity firms use these days, and I don't think a lot of people understand it, but you know, they buy into a percentage of the business. They either put cash in, you roll equity on the same dollar as the investment. And so you have the same preferred equity with your rolled equity. 
you could leave on day one, right? But but the whole point was that you rolled a fair amount of equity that like, if you're the CEO and you leave on day one, you would be damaging a lot of the value of your equity. So everyone is actually in a mutually assured destruction. The investor, and this is why, you know, the investors don't want to piss off the management team because the management team can walk and they, 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 they still own their, they don't lose what they own. It actually is a really good incentive for everyone to do the right thing for for the business, because it's not about waiting around for your payoff and then leave. It's about uh, you've reinvested in that business. Yeah. And I'm a huge fan. Anyone who knows me that has, you know, read my stuff or listens to this podcast, they, they know that I'm a big fan of having upside in your investment. And so if you do take some sort of capital or, or, you know, have a liquidity event, whatever it looks like that you leave some dollars on the table, you leave some equity, you keep some equity in the business because the private equity firm, private equity has a great track record. You know, you, you've got VC that comes in and VC generally wants to 10 X their investment. Of course they want, you know, as big as they can get, but if they think they can 10 X you, they, they want to get in, but you've got a much higher fail rate because you're much earlier stage private equity. They generally are coming in late stage where there's profit. Very, very, and they invest based on profitability. That's so, right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. So the odds are really good. If you have a, a strong PE firm that they're going to be able to do something with it. So if they can 10 X it, you want some chips on the table that right. can get 10 X or, or 20. Well, well or when you think about an earnout, it's often not that you see that as icing. It's kind of them deferring paying for the cake. So what do people do? They leave the day after their earnout is done. So that's not really added value to the business. That's hanging around to make sure that you get what you think you were already deserved rather than partnering to say how do we turn, you know, 10 million dollar business into a 40 million dollar business together. Yeah, and and I am such a fan of having a smaller piece of a bigger pie. And I think a lot of people from a scarcity mindset want the biggest piece of the pie they can get. I think it's better to figure out who are the strategic partners that can help you grow at a level that you couldn't have grown by yourself. And everyone takes a smaller percentage, but it ends up being a bigger win. And so that is the key. You have some upside. Uh, and, and I think that that's brilliant. I know a lot of people, I've got a lot of friends that have taken a clean exit. And the companies that they've exited from have, you know, 10x, 20x, 50x, 100x, and they got nothing of that. And so I'm just a big fan. If you believe in your business and you believe in who's coming in, keep some chips on the table because even if it's just, you know, five, 10, well, it's, it, 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 it's the biggest yeah. strategy, right? It, it, you know, yeah, take 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 your original chips back. You know, leave let some let some ride on the table. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, house money. That's a beautiful thing. So let's let's transition here. So you've done well as an entrepreneur. You've done well in this space where you are a global expert. You're you're leading the world. What made you decide? Hey, I should start writing because you, you've written some successful books. You have many books out. And in fact, I've learned a lot from you on the book writing and launching process. Uh, and I'm thankful that we connected before my book came out in January, because I definitely learned some things from you. But what made you think, hey, I want to be an author? Um, it was, kind of, you know, we had a real success in our industry. There was sort of a dearth of, of thought leadership in our industry. And we had a lot of success. I had a lot of success writing making points, making cases that hadn't been heard. We actually decided to write like the industry's first book about 
our industry, where we thought it was going. And that sort of became a, a goal, which, you know, most people say they want to write a book. They want to write a book. It's everyone's thing they haven't do. I, I actually was in one of these, you spoke to EMP. I was in my first EMP and I just said, I'm going to write the book by next year. And then just changing that sentence literally was the difference between, okay, I'm going to write it. Well, now I started talking to people about how do you write a book? Do you self-publish? Do you full, like, it just switched the energy to, I'm, I'm going to do it. I liked it. You know, I started doing a lot more writing and then I, you know, I, I actually then separately this, this note that I started to my team every morning, which was originally called Friday inspiration, which was just about improvement or getting better started to get shared outside of our company. It had kind of ballooned to now almost 200,000 people around the world every Friday and called Friday forward. So that actually led me to think, Oh, maybe I should write about some stuff, not about uh, uh, marketing. Um, and that led that actually, I went to write the book Friday forward, a uh, bunch of agents and stuff told me, Hey, no one's interested in a compilation. So that actually led me to write the book elevate instead. So I, I eventually realized as I got more into my values and purpose or otherwise, like my, my core purpose is to share ideas that help people and organizations grow. So I, I'm not as much a theory. I like to test with something, tinker something. If I figure out something that works better than an existing thing, I actually don't want to keep it to myself. Like it's more enjoyable to me to like crowdsource it. So like if I figure out a better way to launch the book, it's like, oh, well, let's have Justin launch his book that way. I, that's just sort of how I'm wired. So that's really what my writing has become kind of, Hey, if we've, we've, you know, figured out a better way to run a remote company, better way to do X, like how, how can I share that and sort of crowdsource that? I love it. And you're, you're already a best-selling author and this time around, I'm, I'm sure it's going to be no different. You're going to once again, hit all the lists and, and, you know, you have such a great name in the space, Bob. It's, it's really cool to see. I didn't realize your list was so big. I mean, for for Friday Forward, two hundred thousand people globally. I mean, that is yeah, a it, massive. It, it, it's across sixty countries, and I actually like I had this one service I still use to send it out. All of my other stuff is on a different service, but it sends. They have time based sending, and so it's all. It's in every country around the world. I hear from people, and it goes at seven a.m. all around the world. And then one or two times when I've turned that off, I get all kinds of complaints from people. They're like, I like the 7 a.m. It's like my coffee Friday <laughs> thing. So I actually have to have it out by 3 p.m. on, on Thursday because that's when that's the first 7 a.m. Uh, around the world. Wow. That is cool that you have that many different 7 a.m.s that you're serving. I love that. I love that you have this demand for your product. And by the way, it's really good. I, I have read it. It's yeah. Fantastic. My guess is it's read mostly on the toy in the morning at 7 a.m. That's kind of my, <laughs> probably my guess. <laughs> hey, it doesn't matter where it's read. It yeah, just it's matters all, that all it's good. read and people want it. I mean, I can tell you myself, my favorite thing to do first thing in the morning is read. I, I actually love just that it's, to me, it's this soothing process. Yeah, I feel reading like and writing are both good things in the morning. Yeah, it's so good. I feel like I'm sharpest first thing in the morning. So how many books do you have total now, Bob? My current book coming out, How to Thrive in the uh, Virtual Workplace, that's my fourth book. Uh, I'm working on my second marketing book, which will hopefully come out later, which is a sequel to Performance Partnerships. That's more of a company book. But yeah, I've got four. That's fantastic. So I'm curious why you wanted to write another book. I mean, if you were just in it for checking the box of, hey, I'm a best-selling author, you did that right out of the gates. And then you <laughs> followed that up with future books. So I know it's not about that, but yeah. you know, it's a commitment to write another book. In the back of my mind, you know, I've had, I have all these ideas and books that I want to write and I will likely do something at some point, but it is an 
undertaking. So like right now, I couldn't even think about writing another book. So let me in your brain here. I want to understand why now and why another book. I mean, this will resonate with you because probably why you wrote your book. But but so as I mentioned, we've been remote for 14 years, used to hide it. When COVID hit, I was getting asked to speak. You know, I offered 10 free speeches when COVID hit to companies where it could be helpful. I knew people were laying off. And and and, rem- and I used to give a presentation on how to build a world-class culture. We had won 35 Best Places to Work awards. 35. 35 yeah. Best Places to Work. I think, I think is- 30 or 35. Yeah, some, <laughs> That's somewhere amazing. Around there. Despite, as one of the awards said, not having a place to work. Um, so uh, that, that was listed on our Forbes Small Giant Award I started to get asked a bunch. I was giving this presentation. People asked a ton of questions. In the next presentation, I'd answer those questions. I was like, you know, I went to my publisher. I was like, to me, it's like inefficient to deliver the same information one-on-one. And people like you, they say, Justin, like, how do I do this? And if you're answering it a hundred times. So I said to my publisher, I think I could turn this presentation into like an ebook and we could get it out in 90 days. So they said, that's great. Let's do it. And I was like, this will just be, I mean, you don't make money on books. Like, let's be honest. And you know this, like I said, but like, this will be a good way to get this out. It'll help a lot of people when they're asking me these questions. So, you know, we got this ebook out in 90 days converted this presentation, which was all the sort of steps. And the feedback was was great. But then, you know, I had some time and there was a whole bunch of more stuff that, that sort of came about and talking to other companies. And there was some interest in, it was only like an 80 or 90 page ebook. And, and that's not enough for publishers to want to publish sort of a full book. So there was a bunch of interest. And I said, look, I, there's case studies, there's stories. So I spent another 90 days tripled that book, got it into the full length one. And it actually launched in Europe. It's launched in uh, France. I think we just signed a deal in, in China. And, and, and actually, ironically, the US is almost last and, and North America. But for me, it was like, this is information that can help people and companies. I think we've gotten through the, can we work remotely and survive COVID? And now the thing that a lot of companies are sort of dancing around, they're not is like, what are we going to do going forward? What's the strategy? How are we going to support it? And I think this has a lot of information to help that. I'm not, I'm not a, hey, blow up all the offices and everyone should be remote type person. But, but I do think that companies who ignore the fact that employees are looking for more flexibility are going to find an increasingly dwindling workforce who wants to work nine to five in an office. So uh, Mark Cuban's been saying this a lot with relation to cryptocurrency recently, and I love it. He goes, supply and demand are undefeated. Uh, and, and I would I would repeat that to the to the manager who you know says, look, we're all going back in five days a week and that's how it's going to be because there's there's a lot of people who realize they want something different. That's awesome. I love it. Supply and demand are undefeated. That is so true. And there's so much wisdom in those words. So yeah, pay attention to what the what the market wants and pay attention to what the market needs. Uh, I think that's cool. Um, so, you know, with this book, so this book is coming out this week and, and I'm excited for people to be able to get their hands on it. What would you say is maybe the, the key takeaway and any other highlights that you have for the relevance of this book? I know you've shared some already, but I'd, I'd love to know if there's anything that you can pin. Yeah. So the book's broken up into two sections. It's sort of what does an employee need to be 
you know, have and do to be productive in a remote and work environment? And then what does the company or leadership and management need to do? And there's an interesting theme throughout the book, like, it, because again, it was built off that original presentation about how to build a world-class company. There's a lot of foundational things in there that aren't unique to remote work. I think when you look at the companies that made the transition overnight, these were companies that were good cultures with clear core values and trust and good management and delegation. And so they were able to like make this shift and they just need some policies and procedures and some other things if they want to continue with it. The companies that really struggled was where it was sort of like the tide went out and you went, you saw who wasn't wearing their bathing suit, right? These are, you know, with poor onboarding, micromanaging managers who manage by who's there, you know, not clear values, not clear systems and like, these are the companies that sort of really struggled. So there's a theme throughout the book on the employer side of just the, a lot of the basics that I think you need to do well to make an environment that has a remote concept. Uh, you know, one of the big things is like, which you should have done anyway, get managing to outcomes, not inputs, right? So how, when you can't see everyone every day, do you get to more of the outcome oriented orientation. I mean, we understand this with sales, right? You have two salespeople, Justin, and they call in the first salesperson says, Hey, Justin, I made a hundred calls today. I sent 400 emails. What'd you sell? 500 bucks. Second person says, Hey, Justin, I made 10 calls today. I sent 10 emails. What'd you sell? 5,000 bucks. There's no way that you like the first salesperson better than the second salesperson, right? The, the outcomes are pretty clear in sales that we don't value like just you might dive in if the person's not selling anything and make sure they're making the calls, but that's not, you don't value calls, you value sales. I think talking to CEOs and that and a whole bunch of leaders, this is going to be the biggest shift and, and they should have had it anyway, but what are, what's the scoreboard? What are the outcomes? Like what are the things that you say to people, look, you can work how you want to work, but here is what I am looking for at the end of the day. And frankly, that's a, better way to manage than, you know, managing people by how many hours you see them in your desk at the seat. Because there are companies literally that are repeating that mistake online. They are installing spy software that they're asking managers to go through logs and the employees are going on Amazon and buying mouse movers. And if this is your company, it's a zero sum game. Like <laughs> this is not a good, this is not a good company of like high trust and productivity. If you have, if you're monitoring employees keystrokes and then they're trying to figure out how to get away from that. That's right. And so, you know, there, there are a few different levels of this I'd love to dive into because so number one is you want to be careful that you're not working for a company that's going to fully micromanage to the point of like surveillance and privacy breaches and all that. You don't want that. I do think it's really smart um, in, in the businesses that I have started and help scale, whether it be via advisory and other people's businesses or my own business it has always been outcome driven because that is what I want to reward. I want to reward the behavior that, you know, is producing the best results. And I think that that's the most important thing to look at, but we're in a day and age where I'm hearing more and more about people that have this full-time job, but they're working from home and they take another full-time job at another company and they're double dipping and they're making two full-time incomes or maybe a full-time and a part-time, but they're working the, you know, on the same hours. And so that's a recipe for disaster. But hypothetically, if someone could make it work and they got good results and they were a good time manager, 
for me, I don't care how someone is getting their results as long as it's, you know, their, their ethics, you know, it's there, there's integrity in the process that they're not doing anything shady, but if they're getting great results and they're able to figure out how to do it on less time, Hey, congrats to you. You should be rewarded for that. And I'm all about that. I agree with you. And right. The ethics aside of, you know, non-compete, I think something's either wrong or right with those companies. If you could work two full-time jobs and do that, right. I, I, either it's in an outcome-based thing and you're crushing it, or you're probably underpaid. And that one company should have off was capping you out rather than letting you earn twice as much by producing twice as much. But I, I don't remember this. It was a big case of a Verizon engineer, like four or five years ago that had outsourced an entire job for two years and they found out about it and they fired the guy. I would have gone in and been like, show us how you did this. What about your job could be totally outsourced? I would have paid that person to like, show me what they did. That's right. Scale the outsourcing. What (laughs) else can be outsourced? And then where do you spend your time? Okay, well, this is pretty smart. Maybe we should actually uh, focus. You know, one of the things I always would talk about with, with my teams, my employees, my independent contractors as we're scaling is, Pareto's principle, it's the the 2080, right? So 20% of your activities produces 80% of your results. So what are those activities? And then how do you make sure that you are spending time in the highest income generator, income producing, revenue producing activities? And I would always, you know, share with my, my teams, like figure out the type of work that you're doing. Is this $10 an hour work? Is this $25 an hour work? Is this $500 an hour work? Because you really do want to be doing the highest earning work. You should be spending the majority of your time there into the the 20% of activities that are highest paying, highest producing activities. And then you should outsource the $10, $20 an hour work to people that are more than capable of doing that. And then you're also creating more jobs and building and scaling in a much more sustainable way. And it's a really good leadership exercise or discussion because sometimes we'll talk to someone and they'll say, well, I don't have time to do this. And you say, well, what needs to be done? I'm not... I'm not saying that you need to do it all, right? So if you own it, but you can outsource 80% of it, like again, what what a lot of times people just actually on the reverse, when you're dealing with someone, again, in a company, they sort of, they, they say, we, oh, well, we shouldn't do this because they don't have the time. If it's, it's actually the reverse, if it's the most important thing to get done, let's, let's talk about, let's decide we're going to do it and then let's figure out how it should get done. It doesn't mean that you have to do the whole thing. We were trying to figure out efficiency around a competitive intelligence report. And, I, and, and what was really important about this report was the synthesis of the information. The collecting of it was really time consuming and, and, and remedial. But when we, so someone was telling me like, we just, it's too much time or otherwise so we dove into it. I'm like, this seven hours we could give to an offshore person to pull all this data and back. What I need the manager to do is to look at the data and tell us what do we need to know, right? And this is where good leaders, you, you, you do a deep dive on this. Again, what's the 80-20 and which part of that do you not need to be doing? Yeah. And then surrounding yourself with people that are the highest performers, and that would be in the business, out of the business. So are you attracting a talent? Are you retaining a talent? Are you developing and building and growing your a talent? And are they in the right position? Jim Collins, you know, do you have the right people and are they, you know, in the right positions on the bus? 
And, and so like, that's one thing that I look at as in the business, but then on the business, who's the talent that you're surrounding yourself with? Like as an entrepreneur, as an investor, as someone that aspires to live a certain life and have a certain lifestyle and be able to accomplish, you know, certain things that would be inspiring to you. Who are you hanging out with that are doing those things that you want to do? I, I think that there's so much to this idea that peer group matters mentors matter, mentors that have done the thing that you want to do, right? That that matters. And that you're bringing people into your environment that are the type of people on your teams that you want to be working with, that you get great results from, but you also enjoy spending time with someone that you want to invest in from a time standpoint, from a resources standpoint. And you kind of double that down with like, how committed are you to that in your life. And I know, you know, you are, I know we are, we're in a a shared community that uh, we call ourselves the selfless givers. I'd love to chat about that for a little bit because that's such a powerhouse group of just top performing people that are all about sharing their gifts and their talents with each other to help the whole grow and get better. Yeah. I mean, I can bridge those. You said Jim Collins and one of the, I think it was Jim Collins who said first who, then what, right? I I think so for all these things, like if I have some complicated thing, if it was about investment, I'd be like, you know what? I'm not going to suffer with it. I'm going to go ask Justin and Justin's going to point me right to where I need to go. And I think that segues well, you know, this group is sort of a mastermind group, but you know, you and I have been in these networking groups. They're really transaction oriented. People go in, how do I get sales and leads? A true mastermind group is really the opposite. It's how do we get better individually and collectively? And even in the name of this group, you think about first who, then what? It, it, everyone comes in, they're like, who has the biggest need and how do we all help that person this week? And it is not, it's not a like, oh, I'll just do this and then it'll be my turn. Like it really is how all of those people live their life and operate. And it's such a nice, I've never, ever joined one of those networking groups. I hate them. I find them so like, you know, business cardy, like, but, 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 you know, a group like this where people are like, all right, who's got the highest level need. And then let's all support this person. And they just, you know, it's basically all who discuss. like, here's the person you need to call. Here's what you want to do, you know, and, and it's a, it's a great group. Yeah. And you know what you're talking about when I, I think about like, who is a great example of that? I just spent the weekend with John Hall, you know, mutual he is, friend. He is the epitome of that. Yeah. He is the epitome of selfless giving. And, you know, if you've never met him or seen him, I'm going to have him on the show. We talked about it. It's going to be awesome. And you should look him up because his book is, is, you know, a game changer as well. So he just built this amazing community in Columbia, Missouri. We have family uh, there and properties there. And so uh, part of the reason I uh, like to invest in real estate in places where uh, we are going to go constantly is you get to double dip, right? I know we've got family there, so we're going to go there often. We often buy real estate in those markets. And so he just built out this gorgeous new development and housed us there. And it was an epic experience. I mean, everything he does is to the highest level. And the whole time he's like, hey, how can I serve you? Yeah. So John John Hall and John Rulin are two people. And I think you probably had Rulin on too. This is just how I would describe them. And think about your network and the people. When my phone rings and it says John Hall or John Rulin, and I pick it up, it's, hey, I've got this opportunity for you. Or, hey, I just gave your name to someone. Or, hey, like someone needs whatever you do. It's never, hey, can you help me with something? Like there's just very few people who are really that, have that mindset on life. And by the way, like the people without a sort of abundance mindset tend to do better because 
who's not going to want to do something for John? <laughs> That's right. That's right. And, and John Rulin, we've got uh, his podcast that just came out. So uh, I'm excited that, uh, that, you know, you were, you mentioned exactly that because that is the guy who he is and how he shows up and, I'm just excited for our group. It's a way that you can serve and a way that you can uh, really have impact. And that way it's the, the focus is taken off you. You know, we're, yeah, we're all going to probably default to consuming enough. If we're not careful, we can overconsume. So how do you get into networks where you can pour into other people? It's hard for people to understand. You know, I think spouses and groups like EO and YPO where they have a spousal network, oftentimes they're getting this for the first time. If you just, if you haven't been in a mastermind or understand what it is, it, it, it is really a unique, this comes from Napoleon Hill. And, you know, it's really a unique thing where people are, 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 are there to share experiences, not give advice, help other people, like push everyone forward collectively. Like I, I would really encourage everyone. It, the, the problem is it's not like a directory. You can go find these. It's just a certain type of, group structure that exists. But if you don't have one in your life, like they, it really is life-changing. It's not to be, not to be hyperbolic, but I, I mean, people get addicted. You're probably in four or five as, as am I. Um, but just even when people get their first one and they're like, wow, this is not, you know, this is different from networking or my friends all giving me advice or, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. It's a game changer. It's, it's really how you elevate. It's how you elevate your, I don't want to use the catchphrase of level of consciousness, but it's, it's that you you're in an environment where people think differently. And so the default is that you're going to elevate your thinking in a way or manner that other people think. And it's just different than how you showed up. Uh, that's been my experience. Uh, just, it's a lot more thinking, you know, thinking, planning, strategizing on the business, on your life versus in the weeds of your business or in the weeds of your life, being in reaction mode versus proactive mode. Yeah. And look, one of the best things I've learned from the training at now, which is now used everywhere. I think it's a, but YPO and EO is this notion of, you know, Justin, you know, you, you might say something and then we all go around and share experiences that can be helpful to you, not advice, because in doing that, everyone can learn from those experiences. So I, I we even bring that back to our business. Like if someone says something, instead of saying, here's what I would do, I would say, in my experience, when I had, when I ran into this situation, here's what I did. And it is really a different way of presenting information. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, I have just thoroughly enjoyed our time. I want to make sure that our audience, for everyone listening and everyone watching, that they can get a chance to uh, get your book, learn more about that. Uh, obviously, that just launched and really learn more about you. So where can our listeners find out and, and those watching, where can they find out more about you, Bob? I'm sure they can go to robertglazer.com. Uh, on there is the podcast, the book, uh, Friday Forward, and the courses um, that are out there. There's a free course with, the, if you buy the hardcover of the book, you can get the course for free. I'm also super psyched about the um, core value course that I just launched. If you're trying to figure out, particularly I have this last year, what are my personal core values and what do I want? It's, it's a process really designed to help you do that. Uh, it's only about an hour long. You know what? Let's talk through that a little more because I think that there is so much value in having clarity on what your values are. Like to me, I have my values. I have my family values that my family together came up with, um, you know, core business values of whatever organization it might be. Organization A needs to have its own core values. Organization B needs to have its own core values. So I'd love to hear more on that if you can share. 
Yeah. So discovering and articulating my personal core values, which came out of a leadership retreat I did seven years ago, was the single most important thing I did in my life and my business. If you if you went through my bio and all those books and all that stuff, it is almost all after that date. <laughs> because similarly, the organization was like, oh, here's what I should do. Here's what I should not do. And I started doubling down or otherwise. Most people, I think, know their core values only when they've been violated. They, they, they feel it. Like this feels wrong. This situation feels wrong. This decision feels wrong. This person feels wrong, but, but a lot, they don't have the words or the clarity to like put on their desk and say, like, go this way and not that way. And, and I just didn't find that anywhere. And so we had built out a process. I, I sort of figured it out for myself over six to 12 months. I really believed in teaching our leaders on how to discover their personal core values. Cause I don't think you can be an authentic leader without doing that. And over two years, we built a curriculum and it really worked for helping our leaders at our company. And then in Elevate, I talked a lot about spiritual capacity and figure out your values. And people are like, well, how do you do that? I'm like, well, there's not an easy answer. I do this with people at our company. Same story as before. So I was like, you know what? Why don't I open up that program to everyone? So I, I turned it into a course, made it pu public. I, I set up a, a code for your listeners too. If they use lifestyle, can get $20 off. But it's worth an hour of your time to start the process. If you can't tell people what your core values are, it's just such a big difference when you can do that. I, I can walk into a room, see someone and be like, we just know, like we're just, <laughs> this person, I not share values. I, I don't want, I shouldn't be in business with this person. I need to stay away from this person or otherwise. Yeah. It, it helps you make decisions. I mean, what I found for anyone that says, well, I don't, you know, what am I going to get from figuring out my core values? Decisions, number one it, thing. Yeah. It helps you make a decision right away in real time on where you want to spend time, who you want to partner with. If something is in alignment with what you believe, or if it's out of alignment, there's just so much that I would say with clarity in my values and my personal core values, that really dictates the decisions that I make in life and, you know, who I spend time with, who my family spends time with. And, you know, obviously business, I think it's, uh, you know, we, we've talked enough about that, but I would argue that your core values for who you are, how you want to live life, that trumps your business because that's how you're going to show it, it, it does. And because your business core values, and I've talked to Darius about this, have to be a combination of things that multiple people value. So there will be overlap, but it's not one to one because you don't have 10 carbon copies of each other. One of the things I talk about with values is the, is the, and is the big three. So your chosen vocation and where you want to work who you choose to partner, you know, whether it chooses a partner or marry and where you choose to live or the community you choose to live in. If those things aren't value aligned, if you make those, these are, doesn't mean my wife and I are not the same by any stretch of the imagination, but like, this is the big stuff. Like you have to agree on the big stuff. So if you, if you live in a place where people don't share your values, like every day it's in your face. If you work in a place where people don't share your values, you married to someone or partner with them, like, it's not going to work. It's going to feel terrible. So I always say like big three are, 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 I think are, those are areas where you really want to be clear on your values. There's no doubt. And I just think that, you know, I hear a lot of the time, like, Hey, how do I find the peer group that you're talking about that you found? I mean, I, this is one of the most common questions that I get, Bob is like, how do you, uh, like, elevate to a certain group or, or break into a certain group. And I'm going to tell you, if you know your core values, 
you're going to know there's going to be alignment that you want to be around people that represent those core values. It's, it's going to be an easy yes or an easy no. And instead of a lot of people, uh, and by the way, I've experienced this myself where you live in indecision, like, Oh, I don't know what to do. I don't want to make the wrong choice. Uh, and I don't believe in life anymore that it's, it's right or wrong. I mean, I think there's morals and ethics that, you know, you, you can definitely argue right and wrong, but, I think life in general, when you're, you know, honoring people, it's making it, it it's like decision A and decision B. It's not one's good and one's bad. It's one. No, you make that outcome. the right decision. How do you yeah. make that the right decision? And I, like I said, I think we know these values things. Like the problem is, you know, that why that, you, you know, you know, that that was a bad choice and that it felt wrong, but you don't have the words. Like when you have the words, as you said, decision-making, like, Boom, like one of my, uh, and look, you've probably seen it, like is long-term orientation, right? And, and, and so, you know, you and I, have, you've helped me with some investments and we've been looking at some stuff. Like if you had been like, Bob, you're going to put this money in and we're going to make 10X in like six weeks. Like I, it, that just like goes against every fiber of my being, like people that are super short-term and opportunists. Now there's a positive aspects of like live in the moment or otherwise, but like I, I tend to try to do things for the long term. So, so that to me, again, that to me would have been like setting off radar of like, oh, this doesn't seem like the type of investment that I want to be involved in. You know, we're going to lever up and trade Bitcoin. I would have not, you know, I would have, I would have been out. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think that what you're producing, uh, the content that you're creating, everything that you're doing has so much value. And I just want to thank you for your time on the show here today. And thank you for, you know, your generous offer to our community. And I just want to encourage people to get alignment on their core values and, and take your course and uh, grab your new book, uh, Friday Forward. And I just appreciate your time and the space that you've created and the wisdom that you've brought, Bob. So thank you. Justin, thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Look forward to uh, seeing you soon. I love it. And to everyone listening and watching, uh, I want to end today as I always end. And that is to challenge you to take some form of action today. Move in the direction of financial freedom and a life by design, not a life by default, uh, a life on your terms that has uh, an inspiring and a compelling vision for the future, one that you wake up to that is exhilarating and exciting in a very positive way, not one that's on autopilot or on default. So make your move, take one step towards that today, and we'll hit you up next week. Thanks for listening to the Lifestyle Investor Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to subscribe so future episodes are automatically downloaded directly to your device. You can also leave an honest rating and review over on iTunes. Not only do I read every single one, but it also helps me understand what content matters the most to our audience. And if you can think of one or two people who could benefit from this episode, would you share it with them right now? Who knows, maybe they'll buy you something nice when they make their first million. If you would like access to today's show notes, including links to all the resources mentioned, visit www.justindonald.com forward slash podcast. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week for another episode of The Lifestyle Investor.